All right, it's time for the pod, you joyously miserable accursed. Hurley here, as I always am. And then it's the mostly always here, save for the occasional holiday, teaching assignment, or hellacious hangover, our political panel, Scott Reed, Jordan Leichnitz, and Corey tonight. Here are the next 60 minutes or so. We're back with the David Johnson resignation, because <laughs> we have to be. And more importantly, what happens now? Dominic LeBlanc's been tasked with working with the Oppo parties to get to the next step. And in case you thought we might be burying the lead, our cursed clipping is Campbell Clark's somewhat hilarious piece, I laughed my way through this, in the Globe, How the Liberals Managed a Crisis into a Fiasco. Then it's the politics of inflation, Bank of Canada's interest rate hike, and the slowing down of the economy. And lastly, the field for the Ontario Liberal leadership race seems to be set. We'll give our assessments. And finally, the great Mr. Pinsent will call out our hey yous. Jordan, Corey, Scott, hope you had a good weekend. The press gallery dinner, two of you were at it. You weren't at yeah, it, were you, Jordan? No, Jordan Jordan's frozen. Ah. Jordan's frozen. Frozen. Community internet, what can you say? All right, you guys, you were at the press gallery dinner. Give me some stories. Give me some anecdotes. Tell me a great joke. You heard. Well, well, there there were no great jokes uh, by the guest speakers. The uh, the two MCs actually did a good job. Uh, Marie Daniel Smith from CP and uh, Catherine Levesque from National Post. But uh, uh, you know they they should have probably just done the whole thing uh, as opposed to uh, having any politician speak. <laughs> uh, uh, Trudeau Trudeau beamed in with a video with Zelensky that. You know, it certainly didn't make any attempts at humor and, you know, a bit of a pandering to the gallery on the importance of a free press, et cetera. And, uh, uh, and then Zelensky, you know, said something similar. But, uh, you know, I, I, I got a feel that uh, he had more important things to do uh, at that time than, than, than being sending videos to uh, the Ottawa Press Gallery. But uh, nevertheless, there he was on camera. Uh, Blanchett basically tried to filibuster with like a 30 minute, not funny, boring speech, uh, all in French, and uh, and Singh was his normal, uh, you know, in the long NDP tradition, uh, humorless uh, attempt at humor. And uh, so, anyway, it really sucked. I, I I I don't know what else to say. What would you say, Scott? No conservatives were there. You know, uh, Polyev didn't show. Not a surprise, uh, but uh, but really, not many conservatives in the room uh, to speak of. The highlight of the night for me was Neil McDonald telling me a funny story about a funny thing that happened at the 1977 press gallery dinner because fucking <laughs> nothing funny happened at the one I attended Saturday night. It was, I agree the co-hosts were pretty good, the MCs were pretty good. I thought that Guillaume Saint-Pierre actually was uh, as a president of the gallery. He was actually funny. He was flat yeah, out funny, yeah. right? Like he's yeah. a good guy with some like wit and timing and all that in both languages. But Jesus H. Christ, like the leaders didn't even try to be funny. And I understand... Trudeau, you know, appears Trudeau should, Scott, Trudeau should have taken a book from Scott, a page from Scott Festchuk's book, and had Zelensky say, "The allegations in the Globe and Mail are false." That would have been good. <laughs> yeah. Do something. Well, the weirdest thing about the Trudeau video. So, like, let's give them credit. The guy brings in a war hero in the middle of the war. That's a big card to play. So he counterprogrammed the humor of the thing. Give him credit. But the video was like, don't you think, Corey? It was like strangely long. So, like. Trudeau's up there and he's talking. Zelensky is standing beside him mutely for like mm -hmm. a long time, as Trudeau <laughs> says over and over and over again, like variations on a free press is a fundamental tenet of democracy. And we shouldn't 
be glib about the virtual democracy. You could have said it that fast. Instead, he said it over and over again in both languages about six times. And Zelensky's just standing there nodding. Then Zelensky says something. It was just like Zelensky like, was, you know, kind of a really impressive it's like using Churchill as an ashtray. Like it's like, come on, put the guy to work. Like don't make him, don't insult him by having him stand there. Like I think he's got stuff to do, right? Yeah, like, exactly. you know? uh, But Blanchette for sure took the. I mean, Blanchette was just horrifying. You know, he was he was uh, uh, absolutely unfunny. He made a choice. He decided, I'm just going to punish these people. I'm not going to make them laugh. I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to browbeat them. And he talked forever. And uh, if you like your uh, not funny speeches with a heavy slathering of uh, xenophobia, well, then this was the place to be because uh, <laughs> he sure he sure gave us a, an entree of uh, of pure laneism. It was like it was so it was yeah it was like they've got to reconfigure that whole thing. But why are the yeah. conservatives boycotting it now? Well, same reason as always. They view it as a hostile audience. Uh, I remember when Harper first decided not to go. What what his his point was is it's uh, an effort by the gallery to have you come and make fun of yourself to justify their uh, pre existing biases against you. Um, and you know, I think there's there's something to that. Um, I, I don't think there was there was a, any votes uh, obviously for for Polyev in that room, and I don't think anybody cares that he wasn't there, other than some people in the gallery who don't care for him much anyway. So uh, you I, know, care. I, you know, I care, I care, and of course there's no votes in that room. I'm going to say this for my hey you, but I think it's a cock move, and I think that he should uncock it. Well, by um, the way, can I can I add this? The story <laughs> that Neil McDonald, the story that Donald, Neil McDonald told, right? Just as a t as a tone of how things different they are, naturally you'd expect them to be different from 1977, is that Jim Munson, then working for CTV, shows up at the 1977 press gallery dinner. I hope Neil doesn't mind me t stealing a story. And Munson's had too much to drink. Mulroney is there the year after losing the leadership to Clark in a bad mood with a tall woman and a mixed drink. And he and Munson get into it. They almost come to blows. Reportedly, Munson called him a see you next Tuesday. And uh, it got uh, got pretty messy. So about nine people gathered around and listened to Neil tell the story. And we all laughed. And we thought, well, that's nice to, you know, go through this entire evening with at least one chuckle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I think Neil was telling me another story about somebody throwing, like, somebody was pinch hitting for one of the leaders and they weren't funny enough and, and people started literally throwing buns at them. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't that lively. Uh, uh, probably could have thrown something harder at uh, Blanchette to get yeah, him off the stage. Yeah, across the head would have been good. Yeah. I gather I missed old. literally nothing. No. Not, neither That's... neither neither on Saturday night nor in the first 10 minutes of this conversation. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's what people listening to pod feel like. Well... <laughs> yeah, but we had we had fun. Next year, uh, we've got a good plan. Uh, Scott and I are going to get really drunk and then take the mic, uh, and it'll be way more entertaining. It might might end our careers, but hey, it's for a good cause. I want you to be so bad that Elizabeth May comes up and takes you off the stage. Oh yeah, no, that, that, that could that could, e that could easily bar. happen. That could easily happen. <laughs> All right, let's get to it. So our clipping. Let's start with our clipping. Let's start with our clipping, and it did make me laugh because it's—it was all so utterly predictable. 
Uh, it's from Campbell Clark. In writing in The Globe this morning, he summarizes the government's issue management efforts on the Chinese interference issue and finds them wanting. Here is Campbell. <laughs> the old saw about crisis management is the goal is to figure out where the crisis ends and get there as quickly as possible. The Liberals' crisis management took the most torturous route away from where the whole thing was going to end up in an inquiry and caused them to suffer as many wounds as possible along the way. On Saturday, Dominic LeBlanc complained about toxic partisanship, and there certainly was some, but political heat around allegations of foreign interference was apparent back in March. It was already clear then that a rapporteur who rejected calls for an inquiry, as Mr. Johnson eventually did, was going to face a wave of criticism. Mr. Johnson, Mr. Trudeau threw Mr. Johnson into that bubbling cauldron anyway. Now, three months later, the Liberals are saying they are open to a public inquiry. Mr. LeBlanc even asserted that the idea of having one was never off the table, apparently because Liberals have blotted out the uncomfortable memory of the 17 days between Mr. Johnson's first report and his resignation. You know, the period when an inquiry was off the table. But now, it is due over time. Corey, Dominic LeBlanc tried to throw this back at the opposition over the weekend. You tell us who the rapporteur should be. You tell us what the terms of reference should be. You tell us how this inquiry should be held. I guess that buys them some breathing space, eh? Well, I think it's what they should have done in the beginning. Uh, right. And, uh, like... I, uh, I I don't think they can just walk away from it, uh, you know, cleanly at this point. But you know, all all of Campbell Clark's points I think are valid. Um, but we'll see what the opposition decides to do because this could go one of two ways. They might come back with actual terms and and a suggestion. Uh, you know, there are there are you know a, a lot of different people out there who I think could do that uh, job and be credible. Uh, and they have to be credible because most of the actual sort of core evidence that that you would want to look at to to vet it uh, can't be made public. And uh, so you know it, it's all about the trust of the the person or people who are in charge of it. And you know uh, I would say just as a rule of thumb, family, friends, uh, people who've been on the Trudeau Foundation board, etc., should should probably be you know taken off the table before before uh, anything even starts. So. You know, but but there are there are there are many Canadians out there who could do this if if uh, uh, if uh, folks could come to an agreement, and so maybe maybe the opposition will, or maybe uh, they say no, everything has to be public, or you know, put some 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 things in there that the government can't say yes to without sort of violating five eyes agreements, and, uh, and that'll give uh, opportunity for the Liberals to 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 just move on from this to to where I think they should have been from day one, and we've talked about many times which is just putting out an action plan. Here's what we're going to do to address it. Uh, you know, foreign registry, deal with the police stations, et cetera, et cetera. Scott made all these points as well yesterday on QP. I, you know, that's, that's the obvious thing, I think, for them to be doing. Scott, when I was watching Dominic, you and I know him really well, right? He is smart as a whip, right? And he's steeped in politics, Right. In fact, I'd be surprised if there was a better political mind in Parliament than Dominic LeBlanc's. And while I was watching it, I was thinking, you know, he must have seen all this coming. What was he thinking when this thing, over the last three or four months, when this thing went down? And now they throw him out there to manage it. Uh, you know, I was having similar thoughts. We bumped into Dom yesterday before he was going in to talk on TV and chatted with him a little Saturday night. And 
you know, he's his usual self, right? Funny as hell and uh, uh, smart and kicked it around. But I, I was watching him and I was thinking to myself, uh, and not just because he's a friend, but because he is a genuinely um, talented athlete, right? And you're watching him on on TV and you're listening to him speak and you're thinking, well, this all sounds eminently head nodable. This is all sensible what he's saying. He's executing it pretty well. He's navigating the shoals of this thing with some skill. And you're just like, why why wasn't why not put this guy in the harness on this thing uh in February then? You know, like why like and it's Campbell's point, right? Which is like Jesus H Christ. It's just like all this time to get to this place. And I now find myself really uh really divided in my own mind about how to proceed because I I understand the tactical skill of what uh, Dominic did on Saturday and, and Sunday was saying, listen, you know what? We are open to an inquiry now. Let's hear what the opposition has to say. And I think clearly the government's hope is that the opposition will reveal itself to being impractical in terms of its proposals. And that will give them a, some time, but B gives them license to then take a, a almost any kind of blank slate approach to this. I guess you know, that has some immediate appeal. But to me, like, I think the fundamental flaw of this thing from the beginning is they haven't decided, not just what Don, uh, Campbell says about how do you, what's the end of this thing going to be from an issues management standpoint, but what's the outcome they want? If we know this isn't resonating with people and we know this isn't actually shifting votes, but we do know it's gummed up the government, we know that it corrodes their impression with respect to competence or the government's uh, ability to uh, demonstrate competence. And if we know that the issues under not underlying all of this are incredibly important, like I just heard, a, there's a risk in what they're doing. The risk is that you know the opposition will come back with three quarters reasonable sounding suggestions. So they'll suggest a, a, a jurist or two who seems like a reasonable choice, but their terms of reference will be unacceptable, not intuitively unacceptable, but only unacceptable to people who are really steeped in this thing. So you'll end up with, you know, Dick Fadden, who we chatted with the other night, you know, smart guy, he'll be on TV going, well, these terms of reference actually aren't fair. And, not, you know, there's, some, but it's like, it will seem like they're reasonable. And then the government will have to go through another week of agonizing about why they're rejecting what they asked for. And I just keep going to the point, like, why not just stop arguing about the fucking process of this and get to an argument about the substance by doing a five-point plan and saying, here's what we're doing on foreign uh, agent registry. Here's what we're doing on police stations. Here's the guy who's going to rewire or the woman or the expert or the big forehead is going to rewire the information flow between intelligence agencies and into the political level. Here's what we're doing, by the way, with respect to the unmentioned but much more alarming you know, cyber attacks that occur and our vulnerability to all of that from a lot of foreign actors, not just China, but particularly Russia and others. You know, here's here's our six-point action plan, what we're doing, how we're going to have it done by. And you know what? You guys could jerk off about whether they're hearings or public inquiry or whatever, but we're done with that now. We blew it. We blew our chance to have a public inquiry and make that seem like it was a reasonable response to this situation. Now let's just get on with it. And I just think like it it feels like they're stalling and I'm not sure I'm not sure they should stall. Like they this means they're going to come back to this. Means that in the fall they're going to introduce a package of stuff. It means that they're probably going to end up with some process that's a version of the Johnson process now that they've got the miraculously pleasant outcome of not having to deal with Johnson. Like I, I don't understand. It's just like they're buying more trouble that won't affect Canadians, but will get in their way and keeps them from talking in a persuasive way about what matters to people, which is the economy. Well, Dick, Dick, right. Fat, Dick, wait a Dick, second. Wait, Jordan's back online, so let's uh, let, let's let's hear, let's hear from goddammit. 
Let's hear from Jordan. Yeah, I, well, and I mean, <clears throat> I think maybe I'm in vehement agreement with Scott. Like, they need to rip the fucking Band-Aid off. Like, the, again, it's clear where this is going to land, even if they don't like that. And the interim is what's killing them. So, and I get, like, Dominic LeBlanc is great. And I think he's he's uh, just the kind of firefighter you would want in a situation like this. He's personable. He's smart. Um, and I, and I, and he's reasonable, right? But the optics of once again going out and saying, well, you know, like, we're just, we're going to consult some more. We'd like to hear from the opposite. Like, again, there is someone responsible for this. That person is the prime minister. Again, the prime minister is in a completely reactive position. The fact that he was, uh, you know, traveling uh, on a trip that I'm not sure anyone noticed to Ukraine because this, uh, this news broke when this, ha- like, it looks very uncoordinated. It looks like they were caught flat-footed, that they didn't, you know, that 72 hours before Johnston was swearing up and down that he was going to be staying. Uh, I just think the idea, yeah. Sorry, can I ask you a question? Jordan, can I interrupt and ask you a question? So, because I think this is, it only matters to wankers like us, but just curious about your opinion. So you're saying that you think that Johnson's resignation caught them by surprise and it wasn't a coordinated play with drop him out on Friday with that statement, then had the PM try to trumpet with the Ukrainian appearance? Because I thought it was coordinated and orchestrated. Well, maybe, but I don't think they made enough of the Ukraine thing to make that work, really. Uh, Maybe it was. I mean, certainly the idea of of Johnson coming out after 5 o'clock on a Friday is coordinated with somebody. So maybe Navigator uh, delivered uh, and Johnson got his money's worth in the end. But... Look, oh, Brian Top Brian Top finally got back yeah, to the was, Alberta election. And <laughs> Brian got back and walked in and said, Hey, you gotta quit for Christ's sake. <laughs> what are you doing around here? Friday after five. <laughs> Have you read your emails? People are happy. <laughs> well, whoever whoever finally gave the the counsel that was listened to, thank God. But look, I think I think that as as damaging as this all is. Johnson's resignation gives the opportunity for, like, yet again, a fresh start for the government on this file. They should take it. They should seize it actively. They should determine the terms of the inquiry. I think that there's a real risk that they continue to confuse tactics with strategy here. So the tactic of putting LeBlanc out to consult the opposition there's a real danger that they're actually going to get a reasonable opposition that comes back with suggestions that are workable. And in fact, I would say if you look at what uh, Polyev is out saying this morning and what Singh is out saying, everybody's coming together and they're real ready to put forward some very reasonable proposals. And, and so now, again, the government is going to have something foisted upon them rather than choosing their own path. So I think... It's monumentally stupid for them to drag their feet once again. We all know where this is going to land. And uh, I salute Dominic for taking this on because it's a shit file. Uh, But I really think that they're missing an opportunity here to put the PM in the driver's seat again with some of the other things we've talked about, a proactive package. Look like you're getting on top of this, not like you're again punting this outwards. But, but don't you think they have to? Like, because if they just if they just named an inquiry and picked somebody, they would it have no legitimacy. That person would be the next rapporteur to be riddled with bullets from the opposition. Like, I think they have to they have to yeah, consult I, and get consensus. They and do I, have and, to consult. And I, yeah. And I and I think it's positive. Like, look, I I think that the suggestion of Dick Fadden's a really good one. Like. 
somebody who isn't he has, a business uh, partner of Stephen Harper's? Uh, well, that would actually probably make it better. But like, I, I think the legitimacy around him, like you want to have people who are more uh, opposition oriented than government if you want to have it be uh, legitimate. And I would lean more in that direction if I had to choose and if I were advising the liberals. But you, you want somebody who's steeped in, in intelligence assessments. He was the head of CSIS. He was a national security advisor uh, to the prime minister. So like, the, this is somebody who's- Don't who's start a shocks. rumor. Don't start a He's rumor. We asked Dick about it on Saturday night. He looked at us with shock threw his chair out the window and dove into the Ottawa River. He did not seem to want it. He hasn't well, stopped he, running since. He, 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 he may not want it, and that might be smart to avoid it if you're him, but it would be. I think he would be an example of a very smart suggestion because he is really the first CSIS director who publicly blew the whistle on, on problems with China and did yeah. it in a way that... Uh, was sort of independent of, I think, what it, what the government uh, probably wanted to hear at the time. And he's been quite out, outspoken subsequently about uh, the challenges in this area. So I think, you know, he's demonstrated a legit, legit, legitimacy and a seriousness around these issues that this desperately needs. Yeah, uh, I want to be clear about know, two things. I think they do have to consult, but they cannot use it as a stalling tactic the way that it appears that there's a slight desire to do. So it can't be used to drag this on and secondly the prime minister needs to turn up and lay hands on this Healthcare delivery when canadians ruminate on what it means to be canadian it's way up on the list eh three notches above poutine one notch below collector of the complete works of farley mowat last week here i was talking about how our presenting sponsor telus invests in the canadian economy through the lens of social purpose addressing some of the biggest social challenges we all face as a collective and i left you with this teasing generalized sentence how we modernize our health care and get better access to it all right then let's put that statement into our hurly-burly metaphoric mri machine so we get a much clearer picture of it for more than 15 years now, TELUS Health has been investing and innovating to reimagine the way healthcare is delivered to and experienced by Canadians. So digital health services like virtual care, home health monitoring, collaborative health records, benefits and pharmacy management tools, and personal medical alert systems. That's the what. The how is that more than ever before, TELUS Health has connected these products and services breaking down the old dilapidated healthcare silos so that the flow of information, productivity, and efficiency are dramatically increased among all participants in the value chain. Physicians, pharmacists, health authorities, allied healthcare professionals, insurers, employers, and you, you hurly-burlyites who need the care in the first place. It's making a difference. When it comes to total well-being across physical, mental, and financial health, TELUS Health serves 5.2 million virtual healthcare members. They've managed more than 580 million digital health transactions. TELUS Health has also supported $600 billion worth in pensions and savings. And they continue to provide invaluable support to employers, ensuring the well-being of their workforce. And with the acquisition of LifeWorks, TELUS Health's innovative approach to addressing people's total well-being has now expanded globally, supporting 67 million lives and organizations in 160 countries. It's an Invest in Canada story that's grown exponentially, hurly-burlyites. Find more at telus.com health. 
I got a final question, and I do want to wrap this up because we got other stuff to get onto, and by God, we've drained this well so hard. But I, I got a question. So it's kind of established that David Johnson is considered to be the most favorable look at the government's performance that you could find, which is why he's no longer in that job. And his conclusions were that behind the scenes, the situation was an unholy mess in terms of uh, the management of intelligence and how it flowed to government and what government did with it. By his conclusion, it was an unholy mess. Does anybody not have to lose their job over this? I mean, Love it, Jody Thomas. Jody Thomas said that she, you know, didn't read emails for two weeks because she was on vacation. Is that acceptable? You know, Bill Blair says so many people fucked up that nobody can be blamed. Is that acceptable? Like what? Well, and these failures well, go way back. They predate also the liberals in complete fairness. So I think accountability has to flow fairly widely if heads on plates is what's desired. Well, if the, the, it's not a newsflash that, that CSIS has been a dysfunctional organization for a long time. That's, that's not a newsflash. Uh, and that intelligence is sort of... Uh, Treat it as an afterthought, you know, like the, the, the briefings on intelligence in, in the White House happen first thing every morning. And it's like one of the most important meetings of the day. And it happens every day. That does not happen in Canada. And information is, you know, yesterday's, you know, news tomorrow. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just not the same level. And, and that's not, you know, a huge surprise. The U.S. obviously has you know, hundreds uh, of times more intelligence capacity than Canada, but but it's just not taken seriously in the in the halls of government. It's not timely. It's not well delivered. There's tons of problems there, and it's not that 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 information doesn't exist in some cases. It's that it doesn't find its way to decision makers uh, in in a timely way. So there's lots there to fix, but that that's not new. But it should be fixed. And like, look, if something good can come out of this, it's it's a a fundamental rethinking of how that whole system works. And I think that that would be the the betterment of the intelligence community and the government as a whole. So, you know, let, let's see what happens. Let's see what they do with it. But, you know, I think they'd be better served to get somebody who's an expert in the area to go in or a couple of experts in the area to go in and uh, and come back with some concrete recommendations on that. The public won't care, but it's still worth doing. Look, David, I'll be quick, cynical, and unsatisfying, which is... But most women I've dated would tell you <laughs> it's a perfect description of me. God, you're a one, real treat, Scott. <laughs> one, I would, uh, I, I, I would, in contradiction to um, what Jordan suggested, I would entirely make this a phony exercise, a consultation. I would say, sorry, it's been 72 hours. The gig is up. We're th thank you very much for your input. Just establish that there's been no consensus that's acceptable. Punt it. I talked to two ministers on the weekend, two different ministers, both of them when I said, just start making, take, taking actions, looked at me like I was a lunatic and said, but we've committed to hearing, so we need to, you know, and there's been such a demand for the inquiry, don't you think we need, we, we, we can't just go back on that. I'm like, go back on it? You guys have gone back and around and back and <laughs> sideways on everything. So just fucking. Just yeah, one would argue that's a specialty of this crew. So since since we know it, it's it's not really changing people's votes, then just be cynical. Say, okay, listen, we heard that's that. You know what? Fuck it. No hearings. No Johnson. So no hearings. No public inquiry. We're not going back on that. We don't need that particular pain that we fought for so many years, so many months. Feels like years. And to your point, David, 
I'd say the following four people are fired and the following six things are our priorities in this area. I don't need six months of hearings or two and a half years of a public inquiry, half of which can't be discussed in public, to tell me what the categories of action are required are. Yeah, they need a cabinet shuffle. Some people need to move out of some roles there, clearly, and uh, and some accountability to be demonstrated around this stuff. Uh, you know, but I, certainly the director of CSIS needs to go. Like, there's, uh, you know, there needs to be a, a wholesale leadership change over there. I think uh, if you want to have uh, if you want to have things fixed, because because clearly the, the the processes both at PCO and at CSIS are are broken. Yeah, it's good advice, okay. Scott. But I, I think the opposition will prove itself too reasonable. Let's see. Well, let's hope not. But just all right. Stop. Let's move on from something. something. Let's move on from something that isn't moving votes to something that likely will move votes, and that is uh, the Bank of Canada. Somewhat surprisingly, raised interest rates again last week and signaled that they may not be done. And while most economic indicators have continued to be strong despite the rate hikes we've had, which is why there are more rate hikes. There are disquieting rumblings about mortgage and personal debt burdens out there. Um, the bank seems prepared to accept a recession in order to beat inflation. Uh, recessions are really bad for governments, uh, but survivable if you get them out of the way before the election. You can win on the upswing, which takes me to Jordan, which is why... The best thing that Trudeau has going for him in this circumstance is the confidence and supply agreement. Because normally when you're in a minority parliament, you can't when you're the government in a minority parliament, you can't afford to be unpopular. Because yep. if you're unpopular, there's going to be an election and you'll lose. So you can't think in a minority, well, I'll just let this recession ride out because it's a year before the election is scheduled to happen. But that's the situation. That's the situation that they're... Uh, that they're in. Um, do you think the Liberals can ride this out? The timing is going to be very tight. I think there's a conflict brewing. Obviously, the the wish list for the New Democrats is quite lengthy, and we can see that progress has slowed on some of those things. So if I had to guess, I would say the life of the agreement is well short of the 2025 date in its current form. And so something that we've talked about, uh, you know, is obviously the risk that maybe you arrive at budget time next year and there's not enough there for Singh to continue the support. And that is tight. If you look at these economic numbers, where things are going, the potential of another rate hike in the summer, particularly, um, I don't know. I wouldn't want to be going next spring. I think I think that could be a point of maximum vulnerability, actually. So the Liberals have a real challenge here, whether... That means meeting the terms of the original confidence and supply agreement or sitting down with the New Democrats and saying, look, uh, we've gone as far as we can on this one. Let's try to hammer out a 2.0 to get us through to 2025. Nobody wants a conservative government. Um, I think that they would find open minds in that regard if they were to come to the table with some real offers that were appealing to the New Democrats. But as it stands, I'm not, I don't think it's a sure thing. I don't think it's insurance all the way to 2025. And I also think that, um, you know, we're really, the pain is actually just starting on this. And if you look at the numbers, like we may already be in the beginnings of consumer recession right now. When you layer that on top of household debt, 
Um, you know, some of the indicators around mortgage defaults are becoming very worrying. You know, I saw Frank Graves was out with some numbers last week. Over 20% of Canadians are imminently concerned about the risk of default. And the IMF has put Canada in the highest risk category in the OECD for mortgage default. Like this stuff is about to become very real for people. And it is not a moment that you want to be going into an election. And I also think separate from that, you know, we should begin to have a separate discussion about just the sheer insanity of a monetary policy that relies on driving economies into a recession in order to preserve central bank credibility. But that's a separate conversation. You know, I think it bears mentioning that our sponsor, CN, is not subsidized by Canadian taxpayers. It pulls its weight unassisted, if you'll excuse the pun. As a matter of fact, long-haul rail freight is the only mode of cargo transport in Canada that does not enjoy overt or hidden subsidies from government. Government helps pay for the cost of building ships. Airlines are sheltered from competition and operate out of subsidized airports. Trucks roll on roads built and maintained by your taxes. Meanwhile, CN pays the full cost of maintaining and growing a major railroad. It's an efficient, modern, publicly traded company that moves cargo on time, come what may. None of this is a complaint. It's merely a statement of fact. CN is effectively the bedrock of Canada's supply chains. Rail is far more efficient and powerful than any other form of freight transport. One ton of cargo moves four times farther by train than by truck on the same amount of fuel. One 300-container train replaces 300 trucks. Moving freight by rail instead of by truck lowers greenhouse gas emissions by up to 75%. This year, and in the past several years, CN has spent billions on its rolling stock, new technologies, crossings, bridges, and tracks, which is to say it takes its responsibility to Canada's economy very seriously indeed. And to repeat, it is not asking the government for financial help. It is, however, asking to be free of government hindrance. Buried in the recent federal budget is a new layer of regulation for Canada's railways that will effectively hand over control of cargo scheduling to multinational shipping companies. It is a well-intentioned effort to improve supply chains, but it will, without question, end up imposing new costs, which will ultimately be passed on to consumers already coping with steep inflation. It's a baffling piece of policy. CN's railroaders do their jobs very well indeed. Can we not just allow them? To keep doing it yeah Corey what do you think about the what do you think about the politics of what the Bank of Canada is doing and is there any way that the government uh, well I mean the government if it can last till 2025 has an interest in the Bank of Canada making this short and sharp get inflation down to its two percent level and then let's get the economy back on the upswing can that work for them but it's probably not going to and and there's nothing that you can do in Canada that's going to change that in my view uh, you know, we're dealing with inflationary pressures that are are, are global in nature. Uh, that you know, some some things you can change. Wait a second, we just had a filibuster in the house because inflation is a result of government spending. Well, it, it, Polyev isn't wrong that that is that is part of it, right? And that that is part of what we can do, right? 
But we can't change rising food prices with the war in Ukraine raging on with like 20% of you know, agricultural land uh, growing cereal grains uh, uh, basically out of production. And three of the four ports of that stuff ships out of, you know, basically looking like Berlin in 45. It's, you know, there are things that you can't change. You can't change uh, supply chain pressures as people try to pull out of China and and uh, and onshore, you know, uh, chips that are, are made in Taiwan are not reliable in the sense that, you know, they, there's a Chinese shock collar around the uh, island right now. And and so people are going to want to be producing chips in, in the United States, big effort around that. But they're not going to be at the same low cost that they were when they were produced in Asia. So you're seeing pressures on on pricing, uh, on on many things, you know, electrification, all the stuff that we're doing here, uh, both in Europe and, and in North America, it's going to push prices up. All of these things are inflationary, and no amount of interest rate hikes are going to change those things. So we're probably dealing with a, a a you know medium to long term higher inflation levels across the Western world, and and punishing Canadian consumers uh, for that makes no sense to me. Now, you know, where where do we do have flexibility? Polyev is is right on target. You know, this government is a very big spending government. They have, you know, the approach around uh, 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 pandemic policy, you know, was was the most uh, spendthrift of of uh, uh, that of a, any country in the world. So when you when you look at those things, yeah, like uh, uh, was right. You know, the government could spend less money, and that would that would help reduce inflation. But, uh, you know, the risk around this is you keep raising interest rates and you end up causing an unnecessary recession. Uh, and that's it's, you know, forget the politics It's bad for the fucking country. So I think, uh, you know, we need to we need to be careful. If you're looking at people where you might want to make a change, you know, Bank of Canada governor is another one that I would be considering if I were the if I were the government right now. I always thought the theory. uh I always thought that the the theory was that you know if you don't stamp out inflation, that it will hang around and it will grow, and eventually you'll need to do this anyway. So you suffer all the pain of inflation. It's sort of like the theory about get where you're going to go, which is well, but it's fighting the last war. It's it's fighting the last war, right? Like we're we're not in the you know in the late seventies, early eighties. Like this is a different time period. You know, we're not dealing with the same I, I type of economy. <laughs> Yeah, well, music, <laughs> musically maybe, but uh, but you know. It, it. Like, look, we, you know, you need to have a, a view as to what's happening here today. And, uh, you know, if we have a, a large, you know, basically the same levels of inflation as the U.S., yet we're, you know, pursuing a, a, a different monetary policy uh, than the U.S., I, how is that good for Canada? Like, this is, uh, I, I, I don't see the interest in this. The economy is actually doing quite well. Uh, unemployment has, has basically never been lower for a sustained period as it is right now. And not only is it low, we have hundreds of thousands of unfilled jobs in the economy and we're having to bring in people from abroad to fill them because you know, it's, it's, that is a you know, major uh, uh, throttle on our growth. So you know, it, it, this is just not the same situation. And so you know, dusting off the playbook from the late 70s is, is uh, sort of silly in my mind. Scott, how do you see this playing out politically for the government? Well, I'm an outlier uh, on all of this. I mean, my view is that there are uh, laws of gravity, economically and politically. And I said this last week. I wasn't surprised that the bank moved. Um, I was disappointed it didn't go up by 50 basis points. And the reason I say that is because of my assessment of the political out, out, outlook. Um, you know, the, 
Pierre Trudeau argue, uh, government argued uh, that it was a different kind of recession and recessionary pressures that they were feeling, and therefore the central bank shouldn't be so stern. Mulroney government argued the same thing in the early 90s. Everybody argues that every time we go through one of these periods. And I just think, look, when employment is super strong, GDP continues to be persistent, and inflation seems to be embedded higher than you want it to be, 4 or 5%. I just think that the central bank is going to raise interest rates, and I think it probably ought to raise interest rates. And I think that if you let that dig in, if you don't like the price of gas, you don't like the price of food, get used to it. Because, yes, there's a whole bunch of other uh, external factors, but you're going to have all those internal factors as well, in addition to the spending. But, you know, I just think you need to expect that the central bank is going to do this. And people say it's a blunt instrument. It's like, well, it is, but it's the one that's available. And well but let me finish. And and so and I don't believe that we're at variance with the United States. We're going to see them move also. And so ultimately, I think, you know, the question you have to ask yourself politically is when, not if 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 is off the table and I believe it is, then you have to ask when. And I would have rather I'm glad they moved now. If I'm the Trudeau government, I think a couple things are obvious. I think one is you got to get this out of the way as fast as possible. So you would rather have the central bank move now while you're under the blanket of that CNS agreement. And that means you have to hope that things are improving by the fall and really improving next uh, early next year. Two, uh, you're probably going to be forced into renegotiating the agreement, just as uh, Jordan said, because if the NDP has any wit about it, it will know it's got you by the balls and they'll make you give them something for it. And so I would I would go through that. It's not obvious to me that this means this policy means that there has to be a recession. I think that I think the fact of the matter is that the economy is strong enough that we might be able to thread that needle. But you won't be threading the needle if you don't take the first move on monetary policy. So if I'm the government, I look at this and say it's inevitable. I'm glad it's happening now. Uh, it's my best chance at getting ahead of this. That's sort of my you're, take, mi yeah. you're, you're missing the most obvious thing. If you want to talk differences between the United States and things that the government can do and make a choice around doing, take the province's suggestions and roll back the carbon tax. Delay the increases. Like the, the, if you want to talk about things that cause inflationary pressure around pricing, the carbon tax is is culprit number one uh, for things that the government can easily change. And uh, and and guess who doesn't have a carbon tax? The United States of America. So, you know, when when we're looking at where there are big differences and where are there are things that we can control easily uh, and that are a less blunt instrument than interest rates, uh, taxation policy and fiscal policy are, are you know, they're, they're Corey, you're singing out of both like, sides of your beard, no. right? Like, is it, do, is, are these are, the, are these factors beyond our control? Here. No, no. I'm and everything we do domestically is chicken I, no, shit or and not? None of these it, things, no, by the way, no, no. solves the political problem for this government. Whether we're technically in a recession or not, Canadians are feeling it. People are worried. People whose mortgages... Most people already would describe the economy absolutely, as in recession. Absolutely. Huh. And wages are not tracking inflation. So every month that is getting tighter for people. And so none of this solves the, the problem. Well, and, I, I, and, a carbon and, tax and, reduction does, right? Like if no, you're talking Corey, about things like, that reduce costs on people <laughs> that you can control, that does. It's not going to change the supply chain. It, but that's like fragmentary in terms of what its impact would be on inflation in Canada. Seriously, like... Government's Your view is that interest rate hikes are fragmentary, but the carbon tax isn't. It doesn't. No, it's I'm not I'm coherent. Saying there are I'm, no, it is coherent. There are things that you can control around inflation, and there are things that you can't. And there are things that are are unique to your jurisdiction and things that aren't. So supply chain pressures and pressures on, on food, those are global things that you can't control. There are things that you can control with, within your country. And one of them is your taxation policy. The, co the, the price of the carbon tax 
cascades across the entire economy. And that is a choice that we have made here in Canada through this government uh, that is something that we can control. Uh, and Corey Stone, is, but Polyev I'm not buying. It. The opposition <laughs> well, will argue when the economy is strong. When yeah. the economy is strong and inflation is low, the the, uh, the opposition will argue that a carbon tax makes no sense because things are so robust it won't have any effect on behavior. And when the economy is weak it's and inflation is high, anyway. they it's say don't contribute anyway. to a weaker economy. A, a, a There's never going to be a day anyway. that you're going to support the carbon tax. Well, because Listen, it doesn't and help. I think the it risk here, help. Corey, I think, I think the risk in terms of what we're discussing around monetary policy in Canada is so much bigger than all of this. At a time of historic low institutional trust, the Bank of Canada, the rate hikes, and the, the seeming detachment more broadly from Canadians' lived experience from on the part of this government is, I think, it's a recipe for uh, really scary uh, stuff fomenting, particularly on the far right. This is what drives people into very populist camps. And this stuff is dangerous. And I really do think that when we look at monetary policy more broadly in Canada, it does need to have some democratic legitimacy it needs to have some buy-in from people and when so it jordan, doesn't there was we get a big, to a dangerous place jordan there was a big signal in the bank of canada statement to i think the labor movement and to the ndp which was the inclusion of corporate pricing behavior as one yeah. of the things they yes. were looking at yep, in true. terms of inflationary pressures the first time they've mentioned that they've been talking about wage and pressures and the union movement has been saying hey Look at the other side of the equation. And the bank finally said, hey, we're going to look at the other side of the equation. Well, it's good that they're looking. It didn't change the outcome. But, you know, maybe that's a step. Uh, mm. You know, I noticed also that Bebrusk and the CLC were also out slamming the Bank of Canada on this. So the question of whether the bank's decisions are being politicized or debated or not is passed. Like, that is happening. And so I think that there also needs to be just a, a much broader discussion about how we're organizing this stuff and the way Canadians are living it. And that's not happening. And then I'm going to cycle us right back to the fact that they are still stuck, this government, with Minister Freeland as their spokesperson on this issue, which is such a vulnerability. And I do not see any good news for them with her in that role still. I agree with that. Bring in Dom LeBlanc. Uni unanimity. <laughs> Minister of everything. All right. Our last topic of the day. Hurley Burley, I know you're not paying attention. Um cursed i know you're not paying attention but the ontario liberal leadership race is coming together the field members of the set. panel i know you're not paying attention <laughs> <laughs> the field will the be what? set when bonnie crombie <laughs> enters alongside ted sue nate erskine smith and yasser nakfi jordan what do you think of the field oh god I mean, I'm uh, I'm contractually obligated to to remind everyone that the third party has had the two back to back worst losses since Confederation. So this is this is uh, not a good time. And look, uh, what do I think? So I feel like right now what we're seeing for the Ontario. By the way, in the second worst loss since Confederation, they still got more votes than the NDP. That's not what we're talking about right now, David. That's not nice. Fun with numbers isn't always so fun. My people like to us. We'll have a chance later. Listen, uh, I think that it's actually interesting. I was thinking about this the other day, and, and really the discussion that's emerging about who the Ontario Liberals are. Are they, do they need to take votes from the NDP and take more of that ground, or do they need to sort of retake more of the centrist territory? that Ford has completely cannibalized in Ontario. Both. This debate, 
is so interesting. And I think it actually, it mirrors what's going to happen in a post-Justin Trudeau federal liberal party. So this is a bit of a preview. Um, I think, uh, obviously, Crombie's imminent entrance into the race is going to shake things up in a huge way. I think her, you know, her comments about viewing the party as more right of center, obviously, clearly positions where she's going to be. Um, I think Nakvi's launch, you know, he's he's been shown to have a good ground game. He's out. He's he's really organizing very uh, actively in ethnic communities in the 905. That's going to be critical. Um, look, I don't I don't think that anything is standing out as terribly exciting at this point. Uh, uh, I will say that the race, I think, is doing the party good, though. It's active. It's bringing people out. Uh, they're signing people up. I think that that is positive. Obviously, they are moving past some of the idiocy of the early days with, you know, the Greens and the Mike Schreier. Like, it, it does still seem to me a bit aimless. And I'll be interested to see the ideological debate coalesce a little bit as they get closer. The long uh, length of the race, I still think, is a vulnerability for them. But I'm, I'm not sure that the uh, that, that Marit uh, Stiles and the NDP have managed to take advantage of that. So... Uh, so far, you know, um, not super fascinating, but the, the best is probably yet to come for them. Scott, I think it's a strong field. In fact, I would argue that any of those four people are better than the person who won last time. Yeah, it's a very low bar. <laughs> I, think, I think that's right. I think for sure it is. Um, I think it is a solid field and you can make a case. You can make a pretty passionate case for each one of them. Uh, I know that's not exciting to people. I know this isn't where the heartbeat of Canadian politics is right now, even if you follow Ontario politics all that uh, desperately. But um, I do think that's correct. The other thing, I, I, the most important thing I would observe is that I think that, you know, we saw Bonnie Crombie on Saturday, Corey and I, and she's launching her candidacy on Wednesday in a formal way. And um, look, uh, unless something strange happens, she will win and should win. Uh, she will be the presumed front runner. She brings so much to the table right off the top, right? She's a recognizable name in political circles, relatively speaking, an incumbent mayor in Mississauga, played 905 votes, all that stuff. I don't think it was a mistake that Ford, you know, ran hard at her. The second her name was mentioned. I think he sort of, you know, showed, um, uh, you know, showed some fear there and demonstrated that he's got his eye on her. So all those things augur well for her. I would just give like this obvious warning. And, and that is, just because it looks like you should win this race, don't act like you assume you're going to win this race. And that's both in, uh, for the for her as the candidate and for the campaign in terms of their tenor and tone. Um, and the reason I say that isn't just the obvious warning. It's that this leadership race is long. And I think Bonnie Crombie can use it as a front runner to consolidate her position, not only as the likely winner of that race, but as a real alternative uh, and create some excitement uh, for herself as, a, as, as someone that ought to be premier. And um, that happens when you play scared, when you talk um, about others, not about yourself, and when you really got your game on. And it doesn't happen when you make missteps and you seem smug and you see you run a front runner's campaign as a front runner and then suddenly the race becomes about how many blows you're going to take over the course of the race and the worst case outcome is that that long race isn't used to defeat her it's that it weakens her for when she does take the crown and then she ends up as a weakened commodity as leader so i think they got to really play their cards right in terms of the tone the manner and all that and by the way the final thing i would say the first test of that is on wednesday 
when she's asked the question of what are you doing about your incumbent position as mayor? And the answer should be like either I'm flat out quitting, uh, which would be my recommendation, which I know is not easy for her to take personally and, and is uncomfortable. At minimum, it's got to be I'm taking a leave and I'm not taking a salary or I'm donating it to, you know, uh, this charity of choice. But do not be in a position where you give the premier, much less your opponents, the opportunity to pound on you for months and months and months. You're going to continue to collect a salary as a mayor while not doing the job. That's just dumb politics. Don't start at a deficit. Handle this issue correctly. You can't it hedge your bets. You can't hedge your bets. You've got to you take a hedge gamble. You've got to, it's not a big gamble for her, but she's got to take it. Corey, are the and when she was asked, sorry, I just want to, like, when she was asked this question, when she declared her exploratory committee, which, by the way, isn't a thing. That's she fucked it up. She fucked it up. She acted like it wasn't a big issue, dismissed it, and said, like, go fly a kite when she was asked about it. She can't be in it. She's got to nail this thing to the mast on Wednesday. Hey, Corey, do you see the Liberal Party getting itself up off the mat here? Uh, they have the potential, too. Like, I, I think, uh, irrespective of their standing in the legislature, the, the Liberals always have a, uh, a core of support in the province that means that you have to take them, uh, take them seriously. They're, they're like... Jason in the Friday the 13th uh, movies, you know, you can hold them underwater, light them on fire with gasoline, <laughs> you, know, you know, stab them in the chest with a butcher knife, doesn't matter. There's Send us be a into sequel. space. There's always, there's always another, there's always another sequel with the liberals in, uh, in Ontario. Yeah, I did a couple uh, of those things, but I forgot a couple of them. But, uh, you know, in, in, in any event, like, I, I'm, I'm way less uh, certain on Bonnie Crombie winning. Like, I, I think if it was the old leadership model, that would be the inevitable outcome. But they've changed to a one-member, one-vote model. And it's not going to be, you know, folks like uh, us who are sort of party insiders uh, who end up being two-thirds of the delegates at a convention and, and the sort of uh, consensus of uh, party insiders ends up being the outcome. Like... If that were the if that were the case in those kinds of more open uh, systems, uh, Christine Elliott would have been the leader of the Ontario PC party twice. And uh, you know, the, it, it, you know, it's it, the, the candidates that are more favored in those. It's kinds a great of races, caution. It's a great comparison. Uh, a great caution to her campaign. But it's but it's the Fords and the Patrick Browns in, under those kinds of uh, more open models that tend to do better. And you know, looking at the. Looking at the crowd, you know, we'll see what the crowd is like at uh, Bonnie's event. But uh, at Yasser's, very ethnically diverse. You know, uh, it's going to be selling uh, uh, selling memberships in minority communities in the 905. Will likely whoever does that the best will likely be the winner. That's that's the truth. And uh, you know, is is uh, is the wealthy white woman from uh, Mississauga, uh, the who's a party insider, the the person who's going to best appeal to them? Uh, I think that's kind of up in the air. I also think on these front runner campaigns, you know, where you're perceived as that kind of candidate, uh, you better get fifty one percent on the first ballot because what tends to happen is everyone who else on the ballot uh, is uh, is going to coalesce behind whoever the number two is, or sometimes the number three. But, you know, this is how you get Stefan Dion. Like, this is, uh, you know, this is how you get Andrew Scheer. No, that's, is, why, uh, that's why you get 93 on the first ballot. That's what you want. Yeah. Well, yeah. you want, uh, yeah, obviously, you've, you've set the high watermark forever, uh, David, <laughs> on that. But, 
but look, I, you know, Bonnie, like I, we saw Shield know, on I, the weekend, I, by the I, way, David. I, I think it's I think it's good that Bonnie is 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 getting into the race. I think that there are credible people running, uh, and and that will will create some attention around the Liberal Party provincially, which will be helpful to them. This is the really the lost opportunity that the NDP you know, walked past in terms of just selecting a leader and not having a race that people can follow and get engaged in. But uh, these candidates will go out and, and sell a ton of memberships because that's how you win in this. Uh, you know, and I, I think the the risk for, you know, the Bonnies of the world in these kinds of races is that they they spend their time counting generals and uh, they forget uh, that, you know, this race is going to be decided by, you know, corporals and privates and and uh, uh, and the lower ranks because uh, that's, you know, one vote's one vote. doesn't matter who it's from. You know, sort of springboarding off that, Corey, that, that Ted Sue interests me a lot. I mean, just as a political practitioner, Ted Sue. so the liberal incumbent in Kingston and the island steps down before the 2011 election. And so Ted Sue steps in as a first-time candidate. And you'll remember how things went for the Liberal Party in the 2011 election. Incumbents defeated massively all over the place. Only 40-some seats nationally won. And he won. Right? He held that riding as a first-time guy. And I looked at that when that happened, and I said, holy fuck, that was impressive. Then he doesn't run again in the 2015 election. And he waits, and he runs provincially in 2022. Okay? The Liberals were not picking up new ridings in the 2022 provincial election. They didn't win anything anywhere. And they didn't get party status. And Ted wins his riding, defeats an incumbent, and wins his riding. This guy, at least at a local level, has some game. Yeah, I, I think I think that the, those are good proof points, um, but you know, winning a provincial race is is a lot bigger deal. Like, just to give you an idea of the scale in these one member one vote systems, uh, there was one riding, I think it was Brampton South, that had eighteen thousand members in it that Patrick Brown signed up. 18,000 people in one riding in Brampton. Like the scale of what you need to do is unbelievable. Like, uh, you know, I don't think Bonnie would have gotten 18,000 votes in, in the last mayoral race. Like it's, uh, you know, for all of Mississauga. So, you know, you better understand how to sell memberships and not just to, you know, fancy people who live uh, along the lake. You got to be able to sell memberships uh, in a, in a volume road. that, in a volume that is, uh, you know, requires a, a, a ground game and logistics and all of that. And uh, you're not necessarily, uh, as the establishment person, the one that the people who are going to be signing up are looking to have there. Like, you know, it, as I say, if that if that were the case uh, in the Ontario PC party, you know, Christine Elliott would have been the leader twice. And that did not happen. I just want to say, David, I really agree. I just don't want to let it pass by unmentioned. I, I couldn't agree with you more about Ted Sue. The guy is guy is crazy impressive. And um, and I and and by the way, uh, if you think he's impressive, you should meet his wife. Um, she's she is really impressive. Uh, politically astute, smart, shrewd, wise people. Um, I just I'm not certain that he has sufficient profile um, or force of personality as a pure charismatic creature. In a race of this kind that requires so much reach, as Corey's 
mentioning in order. order what does he have in Kingston? You know that town a little bit. What does he have in that town that people want to vote for him so much? Well, it's, I mean, it's still a community, right? You look at the geography of that riding, you know, it's, it's a, it's contained to, it's a community. And so he's known in that community. He understands that community. They know him. They like him. To know him is to like the guy, right? To know him is to be impressed. So he's got that advantage. It's not a diffuse riding with strange boundaries and all that kind of stuff and different parcels, you know? Um, and so I think that all works to his advantage. Um, I just, I'm not, I think that he will impress during the leadership. I think that people will emerge saying this guy is going to be a power forward in a future government, but I'm not certain that he's going to be able to, I'm not sure he brings the wattage in order to actually capture the, the leader's post. I hope I'm being a condescending jerk and all that's wrong because uh, I quite like him. But, you know, I, I hear what, I hear what Corey's saying. And that's why my caution, the bonding in her campaign is, you know, do all the hard work, um, look scared, run scared. Uh, and think about what the think about the contours of a long front runner leadership are, and how you need to play that. Because um, the well, last thing they can afford she, to do is, is look smart. Is she the front runner? Right. Yes. Is she the front runner? Uh, I I think if you're to say on name recognition, you know, but we're not in a general election, right? Like it's uh, 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 just seen this go a different way many yeah, no, times. This universal suffrage leaderships, man, they're they're engineered but to fuck she up. She definitely starts. She definitely starts the front runner. Uh, I don't but think there's any doubt. But, but whether she remains that. I'll I also know. point out that the Liberal Party uh, is not used to these yeah, kinds of races in, this, in the same way. Like, there's not a cultural right. and a tradition of it. The sort of organizational political insider class uh, in you know conservative politics, especially those coming from the reform side, have been doing this for decades, and and it's kind of a new ball game, I think, for the provincial Liberal Party. Uh, you know, there was a lot of fanfare over moving back to these sort of insider conventions as a way to pick leaders. And now they're going back the other way. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's a they, muscle. They sh- yeah, it's like a, you know, it's a different way of campaigning. It's a different way of doing ah, things. And- talk, talk, talk. Like the shirt says, the how is easy. The how is easy, man. You're just detail boy. Um, I, I was going to say that the reason that Bonnie Crombie is the front runner is because unlike your two parties, uh, liberals only have really one criteria when they're selecting a leader, and that is who is the most likely leader to win an election for us. And at the moment, that appears to be Bonnie Crombie. And if somebody's going to beat her, in my view, they're going to have to change that calculation somehow in this race. Yeah, but I think the the field is broadly credible. Like I I, I think that no no one has really disqualified themselves in that regard. So... No, but she's got the profile. So she looks like she comes in. She's got the profile. She's the person. She's the person that Ford feels he has to attack. Ford did not attack Ted Sue. Yeah, she Uh, ought to be able to lay claim to the infrastructure that Corey's emphasizing is so important. She ought to be able to lay claim to that more easily than anyone else on the basis of her accomplishments, her resume, and and her profile. But you got to use that long leadership to to strengthen your position, having the networks, yeah, and and to emerge light. Right. I mean, that's the real thing too. these Mm -hmm. long leaderships that are with universal suffrage. Right. They for front runners, they're built to make the front runner unlikable. So you got to think about that constantly. You got to think, how do I sound? What am I saying? I need to always, always be punching the like button. All right. I'm feeling the spectral presence of Gordon Pinsent asking us for our hey use. Who would like to go first? Ladies and gentlemen, please return to your seats. The hey yous are about to begin. I will. All right, Jordan, before your internet kicks out again. 
Yeah, seriously. Mm. Uh, doing this all on the cell network. So <laughs> my apologies to everyone listening. Uh, my Hey You this week goes out to the team of people surrounding Pierre Polyev, uh, who are, I think, generally very smart and tactical. But this week, I think that they have allowed way too much self-indulgence from the leader. And I want to talk about the filibuster. And this is in air quotes for our, our uh, listening audience. So if you have two press conferences in a week where you say that you will stand up and you will speak for hours until Justin Trudeau tables a budget with a clear path to balance, and that bill's already under time allocation. No, you're fucking not. You're not doing that. And then if you use that time to stand up and talk about Winston Churchill and Jordan Peterson, like, this is not helpful. You know, we have talked about the way that the conservatives can successfully use the issue of affordability and the economy to their advantage. And it seems that there was some decision to turn back to that this week, but it was padded with so much nonsense, like the subreddit instincts of the university conservative club that are coming out of your leader, that all of that got lost in the shuffle. And that I also would wrap in the fact that if you look at the conservative social media, also, they seem completely obsessed with Bernier going on about the World Economic Forum uh, on the same day that Johnston resigned. Uh, It looks wacky, guys, and you look worried. So that's my hey you. Uh, a little less indulgence from the leader if you want it to work. Well, sure, that's what you say, but George Soros has handed over control of his empire to his eldest son. So maybe they are worried. Shit's getting real. (laughs) I'm just glad Jordan Peterson wasn't in charge of the free world at any point. Um, Who is next? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll bring it back to where we started. My, my hey is going to go out to the uh, parliamentary press gallery. Uh, it's time to uh, totally rethink how you do that event. I, the idea of politicians coming in and speaking and everyone doing a self-deprecating speech, those days are, are clearly over. Nobody's really doing it. You know, Singh made a feeble attempt and was uh, as uh, full of humor as the NDP normally is when talking about itself. And... Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, and, uh, you know, the conservatives, I don't think, are, are likely ever coming back. Uh, and uh, and even Trudeau wouldn't play along anymore. So, you know, and Blanchett, we talked about, but why not just hire a comedian, somebody who is, is actually funny and is a professional at doing that, and give out some journalism awards, you know, shout out to, to Bob Fife and Steve Chase for, for getting the Charles Lynch Award. They certainly deserve it. Uh, but... Um, but, you know, rethink that thing and uh, end the suffering. Uh, just take it out behind the barn and put a bullet in its head. You know, the, the press gallery themselves have gotten lazy on that event because I'm told that before my time, if there was such a period, uh, such an era, before my time, the thing used to be full of skits and gags by the press gallery, which would be at the expense of the politicians. Most of the entertainment was by the press gallery. Um, and since I've been going, they don't do anything uh, like that. They just line up the politicians and expect them to make fun of themselves. Yeah, I, um, first of all, before your time is uh, known as BD. And uh, <laughs> it was it was mostly just people uh, hovering in small groups trying to, uh, you know, 
uh, spark fire. Get fire. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, shadow puff, shadow puff us on the cake on the cave wall kind of thing. Is that what you're talking about? I, I'm going to stick with a the theme. I'm going to go in a different direction. I'm going to go a lot more direct. I, I agree, by the way, about the skits. That's one of the ways that I would recreate the event. And I agree about a, comedians being around. I mean, it's it was uh, frustrating as hell to sit in the audience and listen to Blanchette when Mark Critch was sitting like an arm's length away from me, and I'm like. He's funny. Hey, you know, he might have something funny to say. Yeah, you did have um, multi-party consensus on Mark Critch. <laughs> uh, but I, my, my and hey a big you. fan of the pod. Yeah, no, he and his yeah. wife Melissa were there, and they were chatting us up and having a good... Uh, they were saying all sorts of pleasant things about the pod. It was, uh, it was really fun to hear. But um, I'm going to stick with the non-issue of the Parliamentary Press Gallery dinner. I know that nobody cares, uh, which is part of the problem. But I, I'll just say this. Whatever you reconceive it as, however you want to imagine it, whatever your lamentations are about what it is compared to what it might have been either at an earlier age or an apocryphal age, I'll just say this. Um, the concerns should go. It, they should go. Like the fundamental DNA of that event is that as leaders, right, one, you ought to support a free press. I'm not going to get preachy like the prime minister did, but that's an important thing. And two, laugh at yourself. Demonstrate that you can laugh at yourself. Pull the cork out of your ass. And Pierre Polyev is like, he could perform at that thing. He's got the performance skills. And it's just so depressing that, you know, the, the clear message, and I think the clear attitude is, they're our fucking enemy. Those people, fuck them. Nobody cares if we go to this event or not. And that's all correct. But they see them as the enemy. And that's wrong. And they can't laugh at themselves. And that's wrong. And force yourself. If you're not going to hold press conferences, at least go hold a drink next to a reporter and actually relate to somebody as a human being. And make it a lot harder for you next time you just want to stand in front of a microphone and demonize everybody who works in the, in the media as uh, a fucking shill. And it's just depressing. And I know it's not going to happen. And I know nobody cares. But it's a cock move to not go. And the conservatives should go. It would be good for them. It would be good for Ottawa. and be good for the democratic process. All right. Very good. My uh, hey you goes out to uh, Justin Trudeau. Uh, there was an Angus Reid poll this week. Uh, I don't trust them as much as I trust Leger, but it showed the Liberals at 29. Leger said 33. So that's the range. A good poll shows the Liberals at 33, and a bad one shows them starting with a 2. Uh, so unless the plan for the next election is to squeak another tiny minority out by turning 31% into a plurality. You need a plan to get this number up to 37 or 38%. And that will start with the economy and that will start with the finance minister. And that will start with a totally different emphasis on communications out of this government. And that's the task. So thank you very much, everybody who watched or listened today. Thank you to all the accursed out there. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, TELUS, and to CN. Thank you to the three of you for joining me. And thank God for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders defense on a tremendous goal line stand last night to defeat Edmonton in the season opener of the CFL. All right, everybody. Thanks for watching and listening. We'll be back next week with more of the Curse of Politics. See you then.